Hello comrades and welcome back to Marxist Voice, the podcast of Socialist Appeal. Over the past month, the Marxist Student Federation has had its biggest mobilization ever, with a presence at around 50 university campuses, signing up over 3,500 students and having over 1,000 students attend Why We Are Communist meetings across the country. And this has been part of a wider mobilization of comrades across the international Marxist tendency, fighting for Marxist ideas on campuses uh, from Canada to the United States to South Africa to Pakistan and everywhere in between. It's very clear that Marxist ideas are on the rise, the youth are turning to revolution. And Marxist ideas are the only ideas that can connect uh, to this feeling and explain the turmoil around us and point the way forward in the class struggle. So if you'd like to get involved in this fight, whether you're a student or a worker, head to the link in the show notes of this podcast to get involved. So, as I mentioned, Marxist societies across the country have been holding meetings on the topic of why we are communists. And for this episode, we've recorded one of the talks given at the UCL Marxist Society recently, who invited uh, Josh Holroyd, who's a writer and activist for Socialist Appeal, to speak on this very important topic. So let's just jump straight into things and make sure you stick around at the end for a quick announcement about the upcoming Revolution Festival taking place next weekend. Thanks for having me first of all and thank you for coming. It's great to to be back at UCL where I studied quite a few years ago now uh, to be talking to so many people about the ideas of communism and and first a warning. I am probably going to go a bit over half an hour. I'll, I'll try my best, but there's, there's so much to say. The first thing I want to say is, I mean, it's linked to this, that communism is becoming increasingly popular everywhere, it seems. And it wasn't that long ago. I think it is within, uh, I certainly remember it, but it was not that long ago that communism was dead, apparently. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was no alternative. Communism, socialism, these were old, tired, discredited, wrong ideas that were never coming back. Um, Francis Fukuyama um, famously called it the end of history. The end of history being effectively the end of the class struggle that, I mean, even the working class itself no longer existed, apparently. We'd all become kind of just individuals, middle-class individuals, effectively. Um, And you had publications like The Economist um, publishing um, ideas like we were going to see a peace dividend. So after the collapse of the Soviet Union, end of the Cold War, countries like America, Russia would no longer have to invest in weapons because there weren't going to be any wars now that, you know, communism had fallen. And they were, they were speculating on all the different things all this money could be put into, curing cancer, raising living standards, eliminating world, you know, uh, absolute poverty, all of, these, um, all of these schemes they were going to use the wealth of the world for. It sounds like a sick joke now, but, but I mean, well, I don't know whether they genuinely believed it at the time, but they certainly said it. But now we're looking, uh, you know, that, all of that confidence, all of that hubris came crashing down in 2008, when after capitalist politicians like Gordon, Gra- Gordon Brown had announced that they'd actually done away with boom and bust. There weren't going to be any more capitalist crises because they'd found exactly the right balance of regulation. All of these myths basically came crashing down when the banks at the centre of the economy suddenly discovered that they had a gigantic hole in their balance sheets which had to be followed, uh, filled by creating an even bigger hole in the balance sheets of states all over the world. And we saw states even effectively go bankrupt, uh, like in Greece. Since then, the entire world has seen continuous austerity, Rising insecurity, inequality, um, and poverty. The emergence of food banks, for example, in this country. Uh, there are now more than 2 million people relying on food banks just to get uh, their, their food. And many of these people are in work. Unsurprisingly, this has driven a shift in consciousness. The events, the instability, the crisis that many people have now grown up with 
has caused young people in particular to turn towards the ideas of socialism and, yes, even communism. And in 2019, the Victims of Communism Foundation, I think it's called now, for those of you who are unaware of what Victims of Communism Foundation is, it's effectively a, a right-wing anti-communist pressure group. I think you can probably tell by the name. They produce what they call the Black Book of Communism, where they produce some pretty fantastic figures about how many people communism was killed, including Nazis killed during the Second World War, that kind of thing. And they, they take an annual poll of attitudes to communism, the purpose of which is not to promote communism, but rather as a warning to say to basically the American state, we need to, we need to clamp down on this. And they, they were very, very concerned in 2019 when they published a poll that said that communism was viewed favourably by more than one in three millennials. It's 36%, actually, so more than a third of millennials. That's people, I think it's born between the years of about 1985 and 2000. Um, people um, who had got politically involved in the Corbyn movement, in the Sanders movement, speaking about Britain and America specifically, over a third had a favourable view of communism. And 15% of millennials polled thought the world would be better off if the Soviet Union still, Soviet Union still existed. I should clarify, this is in the United States. This is in the belly of the beast of world imperialism, where you've had a vitriolic anti-communist campaign since communism basically first came into being. Um, well, since the Soviet Union came into being. But that's not all. Things didn't stop there. You had um, the climate crisis radicalising people. I remember going down to, I think it was Trafalgar Square, or Parliament Square, and seeing thousands of schoolchildren, including um, you know, not, not just 17, 18-year-olds, but I'm talking 14, 15-year-olds climbing on buses, and not just saying, we need to sort out climate change, which they were saying, they were also shouting, we need to end capitalism. Those are the two main demands of that movement. We also saw the Black Lives Matter movement exploding onto the scene um, after the murder of George Floyd in the United States. This is during lockdown as well. At its height, I read that 10% of the US population were on the streets. Now, 10% of the US population, I don't know what the US population in total is, but we're talking tens of millions of people were out on the streets in this movement. They even burnt down a police precinct in Minneapolis, I think it was. And when polled, a majority of Americans polled thought that that was the right thing to do, basically. That was the level of anger that existed in American society. And that served to radicalise people even more, including this new young generation, Generation Z, I think probably the majority of you in this room may well belong to that, um, which has been even more radicalised, having grown up. I mean, somebody born in the year, say, the year 2000, all the experiences in the so-called war on terror. In Britain, it's the coming into power of the Tories, austerity. And I, I, I actually recently saw, only today I saw a statistic, that 300,000 unnecessary deaths were caused in Britain by austerity. You know, that level, level of suffering and death is um, inevitably going to radicalise people. And, of course, COVID exposed all the cracks in the, uh, the system. It's not simply, you know, we can debate whether the, the virus itself was caused by capitalism. That's not the most important question for me. It's when it hit, what it was hitting was an infrastructure and a health service that had been completely crippled by austerity. And you saw hundreds of thousands of deaths that could have been prevented, I think, quite easily, were it not for capitalism, basically, and austerity. And going back to these opinion polls, in 2020, the Victims of Communism Foundation found that 57% of Gen Z and 60% of millennials favoured a complete change of our economic system away from capitalism. So a majority, quite high majority, to be honest. Albeit perhaps, you know, that's, that's slightly vague, the fundamental change. 30% um, of Gen Z had a favourable view of Marxism. 16% of Gen Z and millennials in the USA were likely to support a member of the Communist Party for office. 
Unfortunately for them, the Communist Party in the United States support the Democrats, but that's, that's a different story. And 12% of Gen Z and 10% of millennials. This is the thing that I, I'm not just going to quote polls at you all, all night, but this is the one I felt was most significant. 12% of Gen Z and 10% of millennials think that society would be better off if all private property were abolished and held by the government. That is, that's a lot more clear than 60% in favour of fundamental change. And 10% of Gen Z's in America is a lot of people. I'll take that. <laughs> if we can organise just that layer alone, we're, we're, we're really talking in the United States. Um, this is at the same time that revolutions and uprisings topple governments in Latin America, in the Middle East, all over the world. We recently saw the, the inspiring, dramatic events in Sri Lanka, where the masses stormed into the presidential palace and toppled the regime. Um, that's not the end of the story. But... We can see that the world is, is, well, I was going to say hotting up, but I mean more than just, that's not a, a crude pun on climate change. The political situation, instability, is building up to a boiling point. We can see that everywhere. And you probably sat there thinking, well, what did victims of communism say in 2021? What were the results in 2021? I don't know. They didn't publish one. I assume because they're starting to get a little bit worried about the trend. And so I can't help but be reminded of a very famous line from the Communist Manifesto, which I'll slightly paraphrase. All what these polls show us is that a spectre is haunting not just Europe, but the world the spectre of communism. And there's another line in the Communist Manifesto that I can't help but be reminded of, which is, it's high time that communists should openly, in the face of the whole world, publish their views, their aims, their tendencies, and meet this nursery tale of the spectre of communism with a manifesto of the party itself. And I hope that part of the purpose of this introduction, this meeting, is to, to lay out these ideas, to talk about what communism is, what it isn't, and I suppose most importantly, how we get there. So first of all, what is communism? And the... Um, Again, the Communist Manifesto, released in 1848, uh, written by Marx and Engels, they sum up, they say, the theory of the communists may be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property. That's why I thought that poll about uh, private property being abolished was so significant. And the interesting thing about this, the idea of a society without private property, I guess one clarification I put in, the abolition of private property effectively means the abolition of the private ownership of the means of production. It does not mean that your private position, you know, somebody can just t grab your toothbrush and say, well, that's mine, we're going to share it, this is communism. Or that you're, you're at home one night and all of a sudden, you know, hundreds of people move in and say, well, this is our home too, that's communism. That's not what is meant in the Communist Manifesto. That's not certainly not what I mean when I talk of communism. It's a situation in which the land, the factories, if we're talking about a modern economy, the banks, the means of production, the, 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 the means of producing the wealth in society uh, are communally owned and exploited, used in a planned way. And what's interesting is this is not just some utopian scheme that Marx and Engels, or anyone else for that matter, dreamed up. Wouldn't it be nice if we did that? Communist, you know, a, a communist society, in terms of the absence of the primary, primary ownership of land and the means of production, has existed, I would actually say, for the majority of the existence of our species. Regardless of how you define humanity, actually, even if we take quite a narrow definition of homo sapiens, probably for about 95% of our existence on this planet, we have existed under... A, a communist way of life, meaning that the land, um, you know, in the Neolithic period, the land was owned by the, you know, the village family groups and exploited in common. I, I read anthropological studies about hunter-gatherer societies still in existence, being dissolved by the encroachments of capitalism, but still in existence, where the, if we're talking about farming community, the, 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 the produce of the land, or if we're talking about hunters, the hunters and gatherers will bring in all the food they brought in, which will then be communally held and distributed by sometimes elders, sometimes the community as a whole. That is a picture of communism, not the modern communism of the future that I'd say we should be fighting for, 
what communism does not represent is trying to go back to a prehistoric way of life, you know, with today's population, with today's technology. I think that would, if anything, be a reactionary development. But what it does show is that we, we're not talking about some crazy utopian idea. We're actually talking about something that has existed. Um, well, what about the principles of communism today? As I said, I'm not talking about us going back to a Neolithic way of life. Well, Engels, in, in 1847, he wrote a pamphlet called Principles of Communism that um, contributed to uh, the Communist Manifesto. And he summed it up as the general cooperation of all members of society for the purpose of planned exploitation of the planned exploitation of the forces of production. So in other words, a rational, democratic plan of the economy owned and controlled by the whole of society, basically. Not private corporations or private individuals or billionaires like Elon Musk. The, ab the next is the abolition of a situation in which the needs of some are satisfied at the expense of the needs of others. In other words, a situation where production takes place through exploitation, where you have a ruling class which lives off the proceeds of exploiting a, a layer of, of peasants or workers or whatever you like. Uh, the com and, and following on from this, the complete liquidation of classes, of social classes and their conflicts, the basis of which lies in the economy and the division of society based on property ownership. The, he also adds, and this is interesting, the rounded development of the capacities of all members of society through the elimination of the present division of labour. What he means by that is the modern worker today working up to you know, 50, even in some cases 80 hours a week, working a very specific job with a specific um, uh, skill set, is forced to become narrower and narrower as a person and more and more alienated actually from their own skills, their own selves and the rest of society. Marx talks about how the work under, uh, under capitalism becomes simply an appendage of the machine that uh, loses a part of their humanity effectively. Um, what communism, you know, a communist society would represent is on the basis of this planned you know, common ownership and a planned economy that I mentioned earlier, you would be able to reduce the working week. In other words, the, the labour that you have to put, you know, the, the absolutely necessary labour you have to provide to society as a whole in this case, which would essentially be your boss. You could reduce it to four hours a week. Um, Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, who was a, a bourgeois economist, no, never a Marxist, in 1930 predicted that even on the base of capitalism, by 2030, the working week would only be 15 hours long. You'd have a three-day working week, basically, or three five-hour days. Now, it's not quite 2030. Maybe they'll make it, but I, I'm extremely sceptical. In fact, actually, the tendency has been towards the intensification of labour and the extension of the working day wherever the bosses are able to get away with it. And I'm going to talk a little bit in a bit more detail about why that is. So that's one thing that Keynes got massively wrong about the way capitalism works. But the reason why he thought it would even be possible is based on the productivity of labour. He said that judging by the development of the productivity of labour under capitalism, it would get so great that eventually we'd be able to provide the necessities of life to the whole population with everybody just working for 15 hours a week. Well, I would say with modern technology that already exists, if it were exploited in a planned way, in common, for the good of society, to meet the needs, and by the needs, I don't just mean a bowl of rice every, every day to keep everyone alive, I don't mean Spartan need, I mean the needs and desires of humanity for the fulfilment of humanity, we'd actually be able to do that and only need only word, you know, a day a week. And that's probably, I'm probably being conservative. Um, the rest of the time, you would actually, you'd still be working, you'd still be creating, you'd be laboring, but you'd actually be able to develop yourself. Free, good quality education for the whole of your life. I mean, even Jeremy Corbyn pointed towards that. Um, genuinely good healthcare, covering all of your needs. Genuinely good housing. Your ability to actually discover what you're good at, what you want to do, and develop those interests. There's a very poetic uh, phrase from Leon Trotsky, the Russian Revolution, who said... How many Aristotles are herding swine and how many swineherds are sitting on thrones? 
And how many today, how many people, how many you know, genius composers or physicists or poets or mathematicians are currently unaware even of those subjects, unaware they're even good at it, unaware that they even want to do it because they have no access to education and they're, they're, you know, they're working as a swineherd or in a paddy field or in a factory somewhere. And what a loss, not only to them, but to the whole of humanity. At the same time, who do we have sitting on thrones? King Charles. Is he an Aristotle? He thinks he's an Aristotle. Is he a swineherd? Is he a swine? I will let you decide for yourselves. I don't, I don't think he's an Aristotle. I think that we could have much better people. Well, I suppose we wouldn't have thrones, but we're a lot better people in leading positions in society if we actually allow for the full development of people. However, you can't do that. It all comes down to time. You know, as I say, time is money. And without a reduction in the working week, you cannot have that development. And only on the basis of a planned com- um, economy can you have that. Um, Engels also talks about the combination of city and country. In other words, getting rid of a situation where you have incredible concentration of populations just because that's where there's the access to work or people have been made homeless, you know, peasants who've lost their lands who have to come into the, the cities and live incredibly densely populated shanty towns or tower blocks um, in, in, in poor conditions. At the same time, you have like a depopulated countryside, so-called Greenbelt, for example, in, uh, in, in England. And enter that situation. In other words, planning of our environment as well. I should add something that Engels wouldn't have caused to add um, in an ecologically sustainable way. But also, communism offers, the, the, the notion of a communist society is inherently global because today, under capitalism, the economy, the capitalist system, is itself global. The productive forces have grown far, far beyond the limitations of any given nation-state in the same way as long ago they, they grew beyond the confines of a given village community. Um, in order for us to be able to overthrow capitalism and actually live under a capitalist society, uh, sorry, a communist society, it would have to be global by its very nature. That also poses the question, what would happen between the struggle and war and conflict between na- uh, nations and ethnic groups, which are, to this day, cynically exploited and used and deliberately fostered by imperialism, by the capitalists, in order to acquire new markets, acquire resources, exploit cheaper labour, sometimes just find a field for an investment, sometimes just to divide the workers in order to weaken the political movement. The objective need for all of that, I don't think it's based on some innate human evil or greed, the, the objective need for a ruling class to do that becomes superfluous when that ruling class itself no longer exists. And the whole of the productive forces of humanity, so the world, are exploited in common based on a global planned economy. So an end, an end to war, an end to racist oppression. Again, racism is something that has grown up and intensified along with the development of capitalism. It is used to this day to divide workers uh, and to create uh, an underclass of even more uh, oppressed workers um, who can be exploited on even worse conditions for less pay and then presented to, for example, the the more privileged layer of the working classes, oh, they're going to take your jobs. You've you've all seen this rhetoric about immigrants, for example. It tends to be a certain kind of immigrant, doesn't it, with a certain skin colour as well, that these people are coming to take your jobs. That is something that is used in order to grease the wheels of capitalist exploitation and maintain the system. Communism poses the question, can we actually eradicate this altogether? And I believe that we can. And also, finally, I don't have time to go into all these in detail, but it, 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 it poses the possibility of genuine, complete equality and independence between men and women in the family. The Communist Manifesto, if you've read it, actually talks about the abolition of the family. I remember when I first read that as a teenager living at home with parents, I thought, does that mean I'm going to be taken away? Do we just not have families anymore? I don't think that's what they mean. By abolition of the family, what they meant was, well, at that time, the bourgeois family, but the traditional family where the man, you have the marriage contract, and the woman is effectively considered the private property of the man as the head of the family. Interestingly, reactionaries both then and even today attack. I've actually sat in a meeting where somebody has said, well, the problem with communism is what the Marxists want to do is they want to have like common ownership of women. 
Now, that is only possible if you believe that women are property to be nationalised. The, the, the whole point of the abolition of the family is that women cease to become property in the hands of men and in the hands of the capitalist system and actually have the economic dependence to be able to live with who they want, have children with who they want, and leave who they want without being threatened with homelessness or going back to an abusive partner, for example. That's the kind of future that communism wants to achieve. One thing it doesn't mean, I've already mentioned, it doesn't mean that everybody just has access to everybody's personal possessions. It doesn't mean absolute equality in all things. Another, you might have encountered this, another argument against communism I encounter is, well, absolute equality is impossible, it's undesirable, and so we should just have equality as, of opportunity. I have, in many years of being a Marxist, I've never read anything in which they say that everyone should have the exactly equal outcome. I don't think it's necessary. The only things I read are the things that I've been talking about just now, where a situation is suggested where the needs of life, your housing, your access to food, uh, your access to education, health, your ability to, to just basically lead a developed human life. That's what we're talking about. Everyone, that's what the equality is. Everyone has access to that, and then the political oppression that currently exists in capitalism is also eliminated. I'd be more than happy with that. Uh, and I think, I think everyone would be as well. That's one of the clarification I wanted to add. But, I mean, you're probably thinking this all sounds pretty fantastic. One thing that I want to put, put out here is that this isn't just a shopping list of things that would be nice. We can all agree that those things do sound nice. And it's not simply a moral standpoint that capitalism um, is, is exploitative, it's unequal, it's therefore immoral, it shouldn't exist, it's against human nature or this kind of per perfect morality. And what we need to find, we need to discover somehow, is a way of living which is perfectly good and moral and communism is that. That's, not, that's certainly not my approach to it. I think it is a better way of living. But that's not actually the reason, that's not what motivated Marx and Engels, for example, to be communists. Their communism is, is not simply that society would be fairer if, uh, if it were run on these lines. Um, it, to be honest, it wouldn't be fairer if it was impossible and it couldn't be reached. And, um, and, uh, or, if, or if capitalism or some other form of class society could actually enrich people's lives even more. The point is, and this is the point that Marx and Engels emphasised, their basis, their, their basis for their communism was a materialist one. What they meant by that is that they felt that the, the development of history is rooted in the development of, I think I referred to all, already, the productive forces of mankind. I suppose you could sum that up as the productivity of labour, the technology at our disposal in order to meet our needs and tackle the problems faced by humanity. But I think everyone accepts that that has developed and that has grown over time. And with it, you see um, you know, new society, new ways of life, new modes of production. Martin Engels used that expression. Capitalism is one such stage in the development of the evolution of human society. It inevitably arose. We can't go back, change the record, or you know, convince people to live more morally in 1500 and then we'll avoid all that. It's not going to happen. But actually, through this brutal, one might even say evil, uh, system over the last 500 years, the productive forces, the technological basis, the material basis for all of the things I just listed, for a communist society, have already been prepared or are in the process of being prepared. So they, they said their socialism was a, a, and their communism was a scientific one, in that actually they were identifying the real material bases for a new way of life. Um, and that, that brings me to the, the next kind of point that I want to address. If that's communism, why is it necessary? I mean, I've already talked about why it would be great. Why, why is it necessary? I mean, one thing is that, the one important thing is that capitalism is dragging us into a state of, of despair, of barbarism that the current crisis that we're seeing, or should I say crises that we're seeing, at all levels of society and in every part of the world, the so-called cost of living crisis, the reason I say so-called is not because I question whether it exists, it's just 
I don't think there are the words. I don't think we have the language to expre expre express what is already happening and is what, what is going to happen over the next few months. The level of destitution, homelessness, despair, rising suicides inevitably, and what kind of environment that creates for children growing up. I'm not going to go into detail, but this, it can't be put into words. The point I'm trying to make here is it's not just a terrible mistake or the product of bad policy. The government has made mistakes right now which has exacerbated the crisis, it has not caused the crisis. The war in Ukraine has not caused the crisis of capitalism. Actually, all of the phenomena that we're, we're, all of the horrific phenomena that we're seeing right now and experiencing are embedded into the nature of the capitalist system. Take inequality and poverty. Um, it, there was a time where you had lots of these celebrity intellectuals like Hans Rosling and Jordan Peterson who made a lot of money saying that actually capitalism is eradicating poverty. And by 2030, that year again, I can't wait, it's going to be great. That year again, not only will we have a 15-hour working week, but also there'll be no absolute poverty. Now, the way that they back this up is they basically constantly redefined absolute poverty by changing the goalposts. They've actually abandoned that now. Absolute poverty, by anyone's definition, even a defender of the capitalist system, is actually increasing. They've had to admit that. This is not something that is just a bit unfortunate. Like, oh, if only the COVID virus hadn't popped up, or if only Putin hadn't invaded Ukraine... Inequality and poverty are built into capitalist production. You cannot have capitalist production without inequality and property. For starters, the, the beginnings of capitalist production could only take place after people who lived on the land, who probably weren't rich to be fair, were evicted from the land, made homeless with no property, no means of actually earning any kind of living, and were then it's only then that they were desperate enough to go and work in these dark satanic mills, as um, I, forget the, I forget the name of the poet. William Blake described them as, yeah. Um, so in other words, the, the very origin of capitalism required mass pauperization. But going on, moving on from the historical point is, is embedded in the economics of it. What is capitalist production? This is an interesting question to ponder. Capitalist production is production for profit. It's the production of uh, what Marx called surplus value. In other words, that you, when you as the capitalist, you buy whatever means of production you need, you know, the, the, the factory that you're going to use to produce your shoes or whatever, and then you buy the, the, the instruments, the machinery, you buy the materials required to make your products, and you, then you hire someone to make those products for you, what you will get out at the end has a greater value than what you put in. Otherwise, there would be no capitalist production. What would be the point of it? That actually, what you spend as a capitalist turns into a greater sum of money at the end of this process. How does that happen? How is this magic spell cast? A lot of economists have tried to say this because the individual capitalists are clever, and they're very good at buying low and selling high. The problem is, in, a world, in an enclosed world economy, that doesn't make sense. Because if everyone is basically cheating everyone else, then on average, no new value, no new wealth has actually been created in society. It's just been distributed across whatever, the globe. Um, Marx found the origin of this surplus value, the magic of capitalist system, the driving force of the entire system, the logic of the system, in the exploitation of wage labour. And the way the, the way the trick happens, if you like, the magic happens, is... When you go to work, in any job you've been in, when you go to work for your boss, you're not, you're not bought like a chattel slave. You don't agree to live in a cottage on a plot of land and then work a certain number of days on his land like a, a lord under feudalism. You contract that for X number of days a week, for X number of hours a week, I'm going to come into work. And once I'm in work, I'm going to do what you tell me and I'm going to produce what you need to produce. You are not actually selling yourself you are selling your ability to work for that contracted period of time. Marx called that your labour power, your ability to work. But the, the magical thing about it is once you start working, and, you, and of course for your labour power, you receive your contracted wage. The wage is effectively the price of you, your commodity, your ability to work. 
But once you start to work and you produce this new value, you produce this new wealth, if you meet the same amount that you were going to receive for that day in your wage, you don't stop, do you? Well, if you do stop, you'll get told off. Um, and so in that, the rest of that day, let's say for the sake of argument, after only four hours and you're working a, a, a four, an eight-hour day, for the, rest, the next four hours, you are producing profit for the capitalist class. Everything you produce is wealth going directly into the pockets of the capitalist class as the owners of the means of production and the, you know, the instruments and so on. And that is the basis for all profit. You can have individual capitalists who are cunning and clever and come up with good ideas. You can have individual capitalists who are idiots. And some might be more successful than others. Some might outcompete the others. But in reality, that is a clash over the distribution of the profit and seizure of markets. The profit itself is produced entirely by the working class. All of the profit, all the wealth, all the incredible achievements of the capitalist system are based on one thing only, and that is the working class that produces all wealth. As Rupert was already explaining, what, comes to, what becomes extremely clear, crystal clear, during a strike, particularly a, stri a transport strike, actually, is the, is the, the, uh, the phrase um, used by, by Ted Grant, famous Marxist, that not a light bulb shines, not a wheel turns without the kind permission of the working class. I think Rupert said they're the ones that do everything. They're the ones that make uh, things work. And that's where profit comes from as well. But necessarily, in order to extract more profit, you therefore have to make that bit of the day where the workers are effectively working for free, you have to make that as long as possible. You can either do that by extending the working day in absolute terms. You could do that by cutting wages. So the amount of time that they need to actually cover their wage is less. And that's, both of those have been very commonly used in Britain and other places recently over the last few years. You can also intensify the labour power process itself. So you end up working 12 hours in an eight-hour day, sorry, which exhausts the worker. And you might have seen polls of the workforce in Britain are showing much higher levels of stress at work and burnout precisely because the capitalists, who you might have noticed, are not investing in new infrastructure, are not actually investing in uh, using the technology that exists to expand production in a sustainable way, in a way that benefits society. Instead, they're just pressing as hard on the working class as possible to extract as much profit in the most parasitic way possible. Now, you explain to me how you can have that at the basis of your social system and not have poverty and inequality and not have food banks. Basically, every meal taken out of the mouths of these families and their children that they have to then go and take from charity, that is actually going onto the plate of the capitalists. It's going somewhere. It's not disappeared. A meteor hasn't hit the earth and destroyed all wealth. It is going somewhere. And you can see with the concentration of wealth that it's going to very, very few people. And that actually comes to another important point that contributes to inequality and poverty in the world, monopoly. We often talk about capitalism as a free market system. I'm sure you've heard this expression before. It's not a free market system. I mean, it's debatable whether it was ever truly a free market system. But let's say for the sake of argument it was. Free market capitalism, free competition, has transformed itself into its opposite. It's become monopoly. The reason for that is, first of all, the large enterprises eat the small. Every time you have a crisis, you have bankruptcies of the smaller companies which get bought, down, bought out at fire sale prices by the, by the bigger um, you know, monopolies. Uh, bigger companies, sorry, but also with the development of production, setting up, you know, like a, a, a steel producing company or setting up a railway is such a gigantic undertaking that it required the cooperation, the pooling of resources of several capitals, the involvement of large banks, and basically their fusion into what was called at the time trusts, cartels, monopolies, gigantic conglomerates or transnational corporations that dominate a single in industry to the extent that they can basically set whatever prices they like, they can warp the market. And as a result, 
Why is it that Amazon and Tesla have such enormously high market capitalization? I mean, there are other reasons in terms of the, you know, the frenzy of the stock market, but part of it is they have a dominant position or are expected to have a dominant position in the market. That is why you can have a, an individual who is... Has Jeff Bezos become a trillionaire yet? I suppose it doesn't really. This is a secondary point, but somebody with hundreds of billions of dollars that we, they would never be capable of spending in 100 lifetimes, and they're not actually investing in answering the problems of humanity. That is made possible by monopoly. And I mentioned crises. Periodical crisis is inevitable under capitalism, precisely because you have this increasingly planned global economy capable of producing mountains of cheap commodities. At the same time, you have an anarchic market system. So it's not actually altogether clear what goods are needed where. And to make matters worse, it's not a question of who needs it. It's a question of who can buy it. The, the, what the market is responding to is aggregate demand. And so if you're constantly suppressing the demand, the buying power of the working class by the process of squeezing them that I was talking about earlier, if you're constantly robbing the peasants of their livelihood and, and impoverishing them, then you're actually eventually restricting the very same market that you need to sell to. And so you have this insatiable drive, this infinite thirst for basically infinite production and infinite profit at the same time that the market is certainly not infinite, infinite and if anything it's actually shrinking relative to production. That inevitably leads at some point to crises of overproduction um, which, which lead to bankruptcies, destitution and all of the things that I've already talked about. And then I can't talk about capitalism without talking about climate change. Climate change of course is caused by capitalism and even more tragic than that that the reason we're not doing anything about climate change, the reason that we have already gone beyond the tipping point, I think it's to three degrees, and that things now are inevitably getting worse for people, um, is because of the capitalism. We're in this situation where we all know, even, even corporations and governments talk about, yeah, climate change is really important, we need a, a, a program for green investment and stuff like that, but they do nothing. Um, that, again, is based on what is capitalism. Capitalism isn't the production of shoes or bridges or anything like that. Capitalism is the production of profit. And so if you're able to make profit by taking a quantity of money and turning it into a greater quantity of money without even producing or without even developing the productive forces, then that is the best, surest way of doing that. And one example of that that I want to bring up, which is related to climate change, is Bitcoin. I'm sure you've all heard of Bitcoin. Um, the value of all the Bitcoins in the world was over a trillion dollars as of the 26th of November 2021. And I saw a, a University of Cambridge analysis that estimated that Bitcoin mining, so basically solving pointless equations in order to receive bitcoins, uh, which requires computers, which generates heat. It requires 121 terawatt hours of energy a year. That's more than the whole of the country of Argentina consumes for bitcoin mining. Um, and that translates into 22 to, well, 20 billion of CO2 each year is the equivalent of the energy of 2.6 billion homes for, one, for bitcoin mining, for nothing. To turn one quantity of money into a greater quantity of money. Not only is that wealth, that trillion dollars that's been invested in Bitcoin, it's not been invested or directed into attacking, addressing climate change and this green industrial revolution we've been promised. Not only is it wasted in that respect, but actually in investing in it, they're actually contributing to global warming. That is the insanity. And this is happening when all capitalist governments, or almost all capitalist governments, and even great big corporations like BP, that is now called Beyond Petroleum, you know, well, that problem solved. That's even the, the ruling class acknowledges this is a great problem and this is where we're at. It's absolute, the, the insanity of a system that has completely outlived its usefulness is incapable of further development. And there's a famous line from Marx where he says, from forms of development of the productive forces, these relations, and speaking, we're speaking of capitalist relations, turn into their fetters. Then begins, begins an era of social revolution. What kind of social revolution are we talking about? I mentioned earlier 
that the basis, the material basis for a communist society is already being laid, has arguably already been laid under capitalism and is continuing to be laid as we speak, unless capitalism actually manages to destroy all that's created. <coughs> that is the other side. When I talk about why is communism necessary, it's necessary because we need it right now. It's also necessary because it's, it, the, the developments that are leading to at least the possibility of capitalism, are, sorry, communism, are an inevitable part of the economy as it exists now. The, the I already mentioned that we could already reduce the working week. We could eliminate unemployment and use the technology that we already have at our disposal to rationally plan the economy, reduce the working week to much less than 15 hours. But also, I mentioned these transnational monopolies and the bad role they play. Well, they have, uh, ironically, I suppose, I, I, they don't necessarily have a uh, progressive side, but I guess what they do represent is that most of the economy is planned now. I saw the, um, I think it's the UN Trade Association, whatever it's called, they, um, they estimate that 80% of world trade is actually transfers within transnational corporations. So, for example, if Nissan takes an engine and transports it to Sunderland, where the car is actually assembled, that counts towards world trade statistics. In other words, the majority of the world economy, you could argue, is already planned. The problem is it's planned by giant transnational corporations, not in a coordinated way, in an anarchic market system where they're in competition with each other, hiding secrets from each other, like the COVID vaccines, for example, but also, that why is they planning? What are they planning it for? They're planning it to increase their profits and the profits of their shareholders. They're not profits, uh, planning it on the base of need. That's why the monopolies are not socialist in nature, but they actually contain the potential. And what, could, what you can say about monopolization and the concentration of wealth and production in the hands of people like Jeff Bezos makes it very easy to find for the working class. What it actually poses, if the working class had taken power in 1800, they would have been faced by tiny workshops and dispersion of the means of production, the planning of the economy and the creation of a society of abundance and capitalist communism in the modern sense, I think would have been impossible, to be honest. Now, all that would be required is for the working class to take into its account, uh, hands the major banks, the major energy in industry, the major industrial monopolies, and start planning the economy on the basis of need on that basis, and we would actually be at the beginning of the transformation of society on communist lines. That is very much possible. And that's what they're so scared of. That's what people like Jeff Bezos are so scared of. That's why the unionization driver, Amazon, is being resisted with such force. Not only because they'll have to pay higher wages, but also because unions and strikes are schools of war for the working class. Every time the workers participate in a strike, not only do they identify the hostility that exists, you know, the antagonistic interests that exist between them and the, work and the boss, but every time they make a gain, if they win, it gives them a sense of their own power. Actually, we're the people who produce everything, we should get a better deal at the start, but that can actually turn into a revolutionary consciousness. You know what, we can run the whole of society, because they can. They're the ones that do everything anyway. Is it really such a leap? So the final point I want to address then is, well, how do we get there? I've talked about how capitalism, in a way, actually lays the basis for communism. Does that mean that capitalism will naturally and peacefully grow over to communism if it's already laying the basis? No. And if I've given that impression, then I apologise. That is definitely not going to happen. Because it's all well and good talking about the technology isolated from everything else in the abstract. But the, te the technology and the means of production is held by a ruling class which bases itself on its monopoly ownership of the means of production. It bases itself on um, exploitation and on profit. And it will never give up any of that without a fight, and a fight to the finish as well. The only way that the communist reconstruction of society, the building of a communist society can ever take place is if the means of production are seized from the capitalists and seized from the monopolists. And that is necessarily a revolution. Could that revolution be carried out by a Lexington government which then carries out reforms? I mean, revolutions have begun with elections. That's not completely impossible. But is it possible 
to come into the House of Lords and vote for a few bills, and the capitalist state is going to basically sit there and watch you transform the economy? I would say not. The, the state, however democratic, is not a neutral forum where different opinions and different parties can basically try things out and experiment with the fundamental basis of society. We even saw that with Corbyn. Corbyn was not a communist. Corbyn did not want to overthrow capitalism. He just wanted to reform it. But even that was unacceptable. And let's say you get a government that espouses communist views. In Britain, you've got a majority, let's say you've got 60% majority in the House of Commons. You've got the House of Lords. You've got the monarchy, which is the head of the army and, and could be used to topple any democratically elected government that threatens the constitution, which means the, rule of the, rule, the, the, the ruling class, basically. That's why there is no written constitution in Britain. They don't need one. It's quite obvious what the constitution is, what the basis of, of British politics is. Um, that any such government, if it was going to survive and actually carry out its programme, would have to completely wipe away all of these corrupt vestiges of the, the, of the bourgeois state, things like the higher echelons of the civil service that are elected by no one, and would be prepared to, to resist and overturn such a government. In other words, even taking the peaceful road to reform, reform would require revolutionary change. Every state under capitalism, even the most democratic state, is ultimately the dictatorship of one class over another. As the comrade just said, the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. So the, the, the democracy that exists today, or in France, or the Putin dictatorship, or the Erdogan dictatorship, they are all the dictatorship of the capitalist class. So the only way that that can be, the only thing that can replace that is another form of class dictatorship, the dictatorship of the proletariat. That's what that expression means. Now the term dictatorship today has certain connotations. Back when Marx wrote it, it just meant the, the class rule. Uh, effectively, it meant the rule of one class over another. What is required is that the working class takes hold of the state, dismantles all of the reactionary instruments of bourgeois rule, which are no longer fit for purpose if we're talking about a worker state, and actually builds its own worker state, which is an instrument for the revolutionary transformation of society. And again, this is not just a utopian vision that I have or Marx had. This actually is something that Marx developed later off on the back of working class struggle. When the workers of Paris took power and started running their city on a working class democratic basis, he, he said that's the dictatorship of the proletariat and he based himself on that. He didn't just say to the workers, this is exactly what he didn't want to do and sketch out a blueprint. Which is one of the aspects of communism that Engels in his Principles of Communism, he actually describes communism, the theory of communism, as the theory of the liberation of the proletariat. And those things aren't what, what I mentioned earlier about private property and the proletariat are not mutually exclusive. It's the abolition of private property by the conquest of power, by the proletariat, and the transformation of society, liberating the productive forces which are fettered and being destroyed under capitalism in order to actually usher in a whole new stage in the development of human society and actually open up a period where we can, we can achieve the, the, the true fulfilment of the lives of everyone living on the planet. It is entirely possible, but we're going to have to fight for it. And on that, I'll finish. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to this week's episode of Marxist Voice. And if you're feeling inspired by the talk that you've just heard and you want to learn more about the ideas of Marxism and how we can put them into practice, then you should definitely consider coming along to the Revolution Festival, a festival of Marxist ideas hosted by Socialist Appeal, which is taking place in just seven days. This year's Revolution Festival is gonna be our biggest one yet. We have over 32 talks lined up covering a whole host of different questions. I'm just going to read out a list of some of the key talks that are taking place. We've got Italy in the 1920s, from factory occupations to fascism. We've got revolution and civil war in Ireland, Marxist economics, Marxism and the state, 
what is Bonapartism, Marxism versus Black Nationalism, the Chinese Revolution, Cryptocurrency, Dialectics, the current struggle that's taking place in Iran, the national question in Ukraine, was the USSR communist, the role of the monarchy, Marxism and religion, inflation, the Russian Civil War, the revolution in Spain, and art, culture and revolution. And that's just a taste of the talks that we have on offer. We also have daytime activities on the opening Friday of the event. We're going to have two revolutionary walking tours around London, one in the footsteps of Karl Marx and another in the footsteps of uh, Vladimir Lenin. Both of these great revolutionary figures spent a lot of time in London, so we're going to be visiting the places where they worked, the places where they lived, and also places where key events happened uh, in the history of the Bolshevik party. So if you want to educate yourself in Marxist ideas, if you want to get organised and fight for revolution and meet hundreds of Marxists from across Britain and in fact across the globe from as far afield as Canada and across Europe, then get your tickets for Revolution Festival today. If you want to find out more, head to our website www.revolutionfestival.co.uk or head to the link in the show notes of this podcast. And with that, we'll close this week's episode of Marxist Voice, the podcast of Socialist Appeal. Thanks very much for listening. See you next week.